Hello and welcome to the new Daughters of Africa podcast. My name is Panache Chigumadzi. I'm so excited to have you, Professor Cooper, with us today. I just go back to the first time that I saw you, which was at the Daughters of Africa or New Daughters of Africa launch at SOAS in London. And you were wearing a bright red top to toe coat pantsuit and your hair was looking amazing. You had, you know, sort of a fade on the side with your dreadlocks at the top. You just looked amazing and everybody wanted to take a picture with you. And guess what? Today, her hair looks even more amazing. Where'd you get your hair done? Please tell us. Yes, it was done by my friend, Carol Reed, who is a fantastic hair artist. I mean, it's not just stylish. It's an no, it's art. art. <laughs> and I call it, you know, it's really textured art. It's a soft sculpture. No, I absolutely loved it completely. And the inspiration that you gave me, I'm going to get into the interview because I want to just first start by actually giving you a proper introduction. For those of our listeners who don't have the fortune of already knowing your work, today we're talking to Professor Carolyn Cooper, Literary and Cultural Studies, who's taught at the University of the West Indies, Mona, Jamaica, for the last 36 years. Her career is absolutely amazing. Um, she studied in Jamaica as well as studying in Canada. Um, and it's quite interesting as we'll get into the conversation how you started off with the study or your dissertation on Derek Walcott's work and his poetry and became or has the distinction of being really one of the progenitors of the study of dancehall culture in the academy and institutionalizing it. And many people in Jamaica and across of the Afro diaspora would know you not just from the text, but also know you from, as, you know, someone who is in newspapers. You've written a column for, you know, the likes of the Jamaica Gleaner. You've also been a regular TV feature. I've seen you in documentaries on dancehall culture. You've really done so much and particularly around what you call in your um, second book, or rather your first book, Noise in the Blood, The Vulgar Body. And I love the way that you bridge the gaps or the so-called barriers between the two kinds of, of cultures, the things that particularly in academia are seen as low, but also in cultures that are shaped by Eurocentricity, but particularly also anti-Blackness. Um, you've done incredible work in bridging those barriers and it's been really fantastic to read your work. I was just going to Noises in the Blood, reading Sound Clash, which is really a classic for anybody who does cultural studies, anybody who's interested in Jamaica and really understanding just and, and beyond just thinking about the, those spaces, also thinking about embodiment, womanhood, black womanhood in particular, which is why I actually began with just how you look today. And particularly because I find I myself, I'm a young scholar and there's always a way in which we sometimes want to make a division between sort of a life of the body and a life of the mind. So there's a way in which you shouldn't really be too interested in your nails. You shouldn't be too interested in your hair, too interested in your clothes, because that is undermining of a serious intellectual enterprise. And you embody exactly what you're doing in your scholarship is what you embody on a day-to-day -day basis to take joy in the body and particularly a body that has historically being denigrated by a whole lot of cultural forces from the transatlantic slave trade to neocolonialism, neoliberalism, all kinds of forces that continue to overdetermine black womanhood. And so with that, which is a very wide ranging and a bit of a whirlwind <laughs> for, for anyone who's just getting to meet um, an amazing, amazing career, I actually want to start with your short story or rather your your contribution to daughters of africa could you read for us uh, finding romance online in 2018 all right i've taken a very old-fashioned approach to this business of romance waiting for mr right now to just show up but i have concerned friends who have decided that i must help him to find me a year ago one of them gave me a crisp us 20 dollar bill to register on Match.com. I know you usually get what you pay for, and I really didn't think I needed a man I could get at that cut rate price. An executive search was more my style. I thanked my friend for her gift, but told her I wasn't going to use it as intended. Another friend decided to take matters into her own hand. She got in touch with a man she thought would be ideal for me and asked if he would consider inviting me on a date. She was so distressed when he told her he couldn't, quote, manage them powerful women, unquote. 
and he's a magistrate. To be fair to him, I don't think he meant manage in the literal sense of the word, as in this dictionary definition. Quote, be in charge of, run, be head of, head, direct, control, preside over, lead, govern, rule, command, superintend, supervise, oversee, administer, organize, conduct, handle, take forward, guide, be at the helm of, unquote. I suspect that the magistrate meant something more complex. It wasn't so much that he felt inadequate at management. It was more a self-protective suspicion that he himself might be subjected to management, forced to negotiate the terms of the relationship. So-called powerful women have a mind of our own, and we expect to be able to use it even in romance. What I think the magistrate meant by manage is having to take into account the needs and desires of a powerful woman. This is, in fact, the very opposite of being in charge of. Of course, managing a certain kind of woman can be both quite challenging and rewarding, but some men will never find out. Without the help of my concerned friends, I began talking to a seemingly self-confident Jamaican man who is a professor at a brand-name U.S. university. The conversation didn't last very long. He soon told me, in all seriousness, that he was shocked to discover that a relative of his who lives in rural Jamaica knew about me, and he didn't want to be with a woman in the public eye. The professor could have come up with a better excuse. In the age of the internet and cell phone, connectivity across all media is the norm, and there are no communication barriers between town and country. In 1993, Desmond Allen, founding editor of The Observer, asked me to write a weekly column promised to make me a household name. It was actually a threat. Look how we mash up my love life. Seriously though, far less accomplished men than the magistrate and the professor have no reservations at all about managing powerful women. What I admire about the typical Jamaican man is his absolute confidence in his masculinity. From your name man, you can get any woman. They really believe it. There's a nice young man at Helsha Beach who always greets me affectionately. I make a point of calling him son. You think that would deter him? Not at all. He recently told me, Miss Cooper, no bother with the son business. We're going to get married next year. Another young man told me with great self-assurance that I wouldn't have to worry about going out with him to social events. As he put it, me know when to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> I thought it was such an interesting um, story and you're, you're speaking about your foray into the worldwide Anansi web um, <laughs> and you know I think there's a way in which sometimes we are we're not really sure what to do with our um, eros and embodiment and sexuality yes. of, of yes. black women and particularly yes. thinking that you know I think one of the, my favorite essays in Sound Clash is Mama is that you? Yes. Um, and that comes from Dancehall Queen and Baby yes. Mother, which are really important films, I think just for black people diasporically, yes. but just thinking about what is dancehall culture and what is black women's agency in a space that is very much contested, full of yes. clashes. And so I love that you, you brought us into something that I think for many people, we're thinking about, well, how do we do dating? How do we do love and relationships and negotiate those kinds of things in this day and age? And something which many people might not think is appropriate for a Professor Emirata to be doing, you're doing that. <laughs> yes, well, you see, one of the things I think that's so important for us as Black women is to contest some of the definitions that we've been given about ourselves. Because if you're too sexy, you hear that you are now being whorish. And if you're not sexy enough, you hear that you are frigid. And you know, it's like you, you, you have to try to define your identity for yourself. Because if you allow other people to define you, they'll put you in these little boxes from which you can't escape. And that for me is why dance hall is so important because most people see dance hall as a misogynist space. You know, oh, these women are turned into sex objects. and. So you want to be part of the beauty of the erotic is being a sex object. It doesn't mean that you are mindless, but you want your body to be celebrated and appreciated. And one of the interesting issues in dancehall culture, as you saw in those films, 
is that the power to attract the light of the video Mm -hmm. means that you are desirable. Now, mm -hmm. in Western feminist discourse, the gaze is seen as something alienating. You know, women are seen as victims of the gaze that men are looking at them and desiring them. And this is something that is to be, you know, disdained. But in dancehall culture, women desire the gaze. And yeah. if you dress up and go to a dance and nobody don't look at you, <laughs> that means you're not saying nothing. You know, you, you, know, you, have yes. you want to attract the you, you gaze. You want to be in the video light. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Exactly. And I, if you can just bring us also to your story, and I could say, well, Professor, is this you? Yes. <laughs> what, what, what brings you and why do you decide to have this particular contribution when you're asked by Margaret Busby to contribute to Daughters of Africa? Why this one? Well, I didn't think, you know, I don't think of myself as a conventional, quote-unquote, creative writer, although I believe that all writing is creative. My newspaper columns are what I call writing without footnotes. You know, mm -hmm. you don't get stuck with all of the academic essentials. So you can just talk in your own voice. So, so many people had reacted positively to the column, you know, mm -hmm. just entertained by it, that I said, oh, well, this might be a good thing to contribute. So when I sent it to Margaret, uh, she liked it and that was it. And I think it's important to recognize that there's a voice that's not academic, but that also deals with issues that we would conventionally think of as academic, you know, the issues of male-female relationships. What are the expectations that black men have of women? Why would a professor, a sensible man, say that he doesn't want to be with a woman who is in the public eye? The fact that I'm in the public eye doesn't mean that I don't know how to maintain the boundaries of the personal and the public and the private, you know. So that kind of issue about how as female academics, we maintain a balance between scholarship and, you know, the, the demands of intimacy, sexual intimacy. You know, you want to be a, recognized as a serious scholar, but first and foremost, you're a woman and you would like to be engaged in a loving relationship with a man if you're heterosexual or not a woman if you're gay. So, I mean, this, this is your whole spectrum of needs that I think we have to take into account. So I was very amused when Margaret liked it and decided to run with it. And one of my friends, you know, she said to me, she's an academic in, in Canada. She said she woke up this morning feeling so miserable because she had all of these online meetings. And when she read my piece in the book she said her headache disappeared she laughed so much <laughs> she enjoyed herself yeah. thoroughly so you couldn't ask for a better response than that no I absolutely love that and I think just the way in which she brings space for play I mean it's you know it's not a heavy piece about you know the inquiry male female um, you yes. know relations and that kind of thing it is the space to be playful and to claim that for yourself yes. even as a so-called serious um, intellectual yes. and I think that's something that's so consistent within your career is claiming space and moving between those bound or rather calling attention to the things that are the clashes. Things I'm interested in is showing that some of what we think are clashes are not clashes after all exactly. that there's a continuum between the oral and the scribal tradition and some of the issues that we see in academia are identical to the ones in the popular sphere the difference is that the language is quite different. You know, you, you kind of academic abstractions that we use all the time have a mirror image in everyday language. And I think many academics don't draw on that language. This is why, for example, Louise Bennett is such an important mm -hmm. figure in my work, because right. when she talks about turning history upside down, that's the same as the politics of decolonization and all of the fancy terms that the academics use, which she just uses as simple everyday thing we pack with bag and baggage and turn history upside down. Instead of being colonized by the English, we go to England and colonize them with our language. Jamaican mm -hmm. language is a street language of British youth now, and we colonize them just a culture, the music and all of that. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And I wonder if you might tell us a little bit more about your growing up in Jamaica and the kinds yes. of things that form this approach, um, because obviously, as we understand, we don't come out of vacuums. We're the product yes. of generations. So what forms young Carolyn? Well, I would say one of the major influences, obviously, is a family, the home in which mm -hmm. you grew up. I grew up in a home where until I was three, 
my mother and my father were my primary caregivers, as well as my grandmother and my aunt who lived in a different household. My mother was an elementary school teacher. My father was a tailor. Now my father is a, was a brilliant artist. He died recently in his late nineties, mm -hmm. but he was not a businessman. So he was not very good at managing the business of being a tailor. He would give people their suits without getting paid. So he decided to go to England to try his luck working in a factory in Luton. Yeah. My mother stayed in Jamaica. So for my first three years, I had mother and father in the home, giving you the sense of guidance and so on. So family is the important thing. Mm -hmm. My mother actually went to England for a year while my mm -hmm. father was there. She, he stayed for about nine years. She went and taught at a comprehensive school in Luton, but mm -hmm. she hated it. So thanks to her, we remained in Jamaica because mm -hmm. perhaps if she had liked England, we would have become <laughs> black British. And I hate to say a fate worse than death. When I say these things, I tell my black British friends, no, 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 no. I don't really mean it like that. But I'm glad, I'm glad we stayed in Jamaica. So family, mm -hmm. another big influence was church. Mm -hmm. And um, I grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist church, very fundamentalist, very anti-intellectual. But the point is, when you have bright children growing up in these kinds of churches, you're going to ask all kinds of questions yeah. and you better have sense of the answers. And I could not get any sense of the answer to some of the questions that I was asking. So while I was a child, you know, you stayed in it until you became an adult and you could break away from some of the doctrines that didn't make any sense. But one of the things that I've kept out of that religious experience is the sense of being able to go against the grain. Because the Seventh-day Adventist church is one in which we would have this big philosophy that we're on the straight and narrow pathway leading to heaven and the rest of the people are the broad <laughs> road to destruction, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And everybody's going to church on Sunday, you're going to church on Saturday. So you developed a sense that not going with the crowd was a potentially a very positive thing. And I believe right. having that courage to go against the grain mm -hmm. is something that made me even reject the church in a, in a yeah. curious way, you know. That I'm not going to go along with you guys and your folly. So um, I take from that experience of growing up in the Seventh-day Adventist church this conviction that you can stand up for what you believe in despite the fact that the majority may not agree with you. So that those are the influences, home and church. And yeah. of course, school. I went to a primary school, the Rollington Town Primary School, that has produced a whole set of talented people. You know, we all come out of this little working class mm -hmm. community. But everybody had this sense. Those of us who ended up so-called accomplished had the sense of our ability as children. Now, it is right. true. That every day at the end of school, we used to say this prayer, light in our darkness, we beseech thee, O Lord, and by thy great mercy, defend us from all the perils and dangers of this night. Now, light in our darkness is problematic in the Caribbean, mm -hmm. in Jamaica, where mm -hmm. the majority of people are black. So mm -hmm. this lightening of the darkness could also be seen as a kind of rejection of yeah. our black identity. But I don't think as children we read it that way. But if you every five, five days a week you're saying light in our darkness, does have some kind of psychological effect on mm -hmm. you. And I think that was one of the other issues that I found challenging growing up in Jamaica as a little black girl who was told by my society that I was ugly because, you know, you're mm -hmm. black, you're ugly, not black, yeah. you're good. It was a fight for me to recognize my beauty. And I keep telling people I have to big up the African men, the students at mm -hmm. the University of Toronto where I went as a graduate student who kept telling me that I was beautiful, you know? Yeah. And that external validation does help. I definitely resonate with, with a lot of that as well. I mean, like growing up in post-apartheid South Africa and those kinds of messages and, you know, yes. having to then find a space for yourself in figuring yes. out, you know, who you are as, as a young Black woman. I'm interested then, how do you arrive within the space of literature? I always loved literature. And I tell you, I have to pick up the Jamaica Library Service mm -hmm. because they had a bookmobile that came to a primary school, which was just down the road from where I was living. And every two weeks, I would go and get a stack, you know, the Hardy Boys and the Nancy Drew and, you know, those kinds of books. And, you know, they kept your imagination going. 
And by the time I was going to go to university, I was also good at languages. I did French and Spanish for A-levels and English, and I was going to do modern languages at university. Then when I went and discovered that a degree in modern languages was really a degree in the literature in the languages and yeah. somewhat lazy, I decided that, well, if I'm going to study literature, I might as well study literature in my own mother tongue, or as I like to think of English as my stepmother mm -hmm. tongue. I think of Jamaican as my mother tongue. And within the first week of being on campus, I switched from modern languages to literature. Yeah. And that literature degree, that whole, it, it really led me to cultural studies because as you know, mm -hmm. the field of cultural studies de developed out of literary studies. Mm -hmm. Because for me, modern languages at the University of the West Indies, for example, tended to be somewhat boring, not very exciting. Whereas in literature, we were doing all kinds of interesting things. I decided I'm going to focus on our literature because I said, you know, there are enough white people studying their own literature. I'm going to study black people's literature. And then when I realized, when I thought about it some more, I realized that even those of us who were studying West Indian literature were focusing on the scribal end of the continuum. Right. And I decided to do, look more at the oral. And so that is how I got into looking at people like Louise Bennett and the dub poets and eventually reggae lyricists and dance mm -hmm. hall. And so, I think you've mentioned this in your work that you had some of your mentors who have forged a path in this breaking down of the scribal and oral tradition. So people like Kamal Brathwaite, yeah. uh, people like Mervyn Morris. Can you speak to some of those influences in the past that they, they made open for you? Yes, absolutely. The first one I would like to talk about is Professor Kenneth Ramchand, mm -hmm. who introduced the very first course on West Indian literature at the University of the West Indies when I was a student. It was in 1969-70, and it was a revelation to be studying your own literature. Mm -hmm. And I still have from those years, 53 years ago, the essay that I wrote for that course. <laughs> it's one of my prized possessions. And one of the things he mentioned, it's that courage, his, his recognition of that courage, mm -hmm. I think, is something that was very important for me because in order to be a truly inventive scholar, you yeah. have to have courage. You can't be afraid. Another important influence is Lucille Matherin Mayer, a distinguished historian and diplomat. She said to me, Carolyn, never let what people think about your work stop you from doing it. You have to have courage. You can't just, you can't allow other people to determine mm -hmm. your, your agenda. So, you know, it's the Mayor, it's Kenneth Ramjan, it's Eddie Ball, my teacher of um, West Indian poetry. In fact, I, he's a great poet, as a brilliant teacher, and it's because of his own work on Derek Walker that I did my PhD on Walker. And it is in studying Walker that I began to see this divide between the oral and the scribal, mm -hmm. between the English and Creole, because Walcott's poetry tends to be more in tune with English literary discourse. But his plays, where he brings in the folk tales and the Creole language, and later on you get the Creole in the poetry. But, you know, Walcott was struggling with this divide, again, mm -hmm. between, he talks in, he has an essay in which he speaks in his introduction to his collection of four of his plays where he talks about with his back turned to the street he was writing all of these he was hearing the rhythms of the street mm -hmm. they were beginning to enter his wrist you know so your your back might be turned to the street but your ears are open to this language of the street and this is what Walcott was trying to bring together in his work I also have to mention Gordon Rolaire his work on the Calypso as literary mm -hmm. text made it possible for me to do my own work on, on reggae and dance on. And Professor Maureen Warner-Lewis, she taught me at UWE and she developed the orature courses mm -hmm. in the department. So all of these influences then enabled me to just bust out into <laughs> dance on. <laughs> I absolutely love that. I mean, you have your seminal essay. seminal. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the ovular essay. Yes. <laughs> uh, flatness hiding from culture. Can you explain, talk to us about that essay, 
How I got to write it was simply because I said I needed to understand this body of work. And I have to big up my gardener, John mm -hmm. Thomas. He used to bring his tape recorder to work mm -hmm. to have the music going as he's working. And one day I heard this tune and I'm so mad with myself. I can't remember what it was. And the, the metaphors were so rich. I said, but you know, this thing, we need to start taking this thing seriously. It's literary. And that is how I started to listen to dancehall lyrics because of my gardener bringing his um, boombox to work. And once I started to listen, I, I was lucky to get a fellowship from the Association of Commonwealth Universities to do um, Noises in the Blood. I went to University of Birmingham and I was lucky to work with Dr. Stuart Brown, committed to our field of study. In fact, he had taught in Jamaica. He's one of the co-editors with Mervyn Morris and Gordon Relier of the collection Voice Print. It's an anthology looking at oral elements in yeah. written tradition. And for Christmas, I came home for Christmas and I said, now where am I going to get these texts? And I went to um, this record shop and got a collection, a CD, the best off. And I sat down, transcribed the lyric. I began to see recurring themes and patterns. And that's how that essay, Slackness Hiding from Culture, emerged. It's just listening to the creativity. You begin to see that a lot of what people dismiss as nonsense is actually intellectual work. And so at that time, I mean, we now know it's a, it's a canonical, a really important essay within the canon. What was the response then? What was it like when you presented it at the conference? Well, what was interesting is that John Figaro, mm. an important poet and academic, when he heard the paper, the first thing he said is, but you should publish a collection of these lyrics. And I said, but why? The lyrics exist as performed texts. Mm -hmm. I don't need to, you know, but, but at least what he was recognizing was that this was stuff that needed to be read and decoded, mm -hmm. not just right. out of heard kind of thing. So in general, I would say the reactions went from, why is Carlin wasting our time on foolishness? <laughs> so uh, maybe there's something in it. I remember giving a talk on dancehall at the University of West Indies and one of my colleagues who is a sociologist, respected sociologist. When I finished, she said, you know, Carolyn, you're beginning to convince me that maybe this is serious. It was very tentative, mm -hmm. but she was acknowledging that there was more to it than she might have initially wanted to concede. So again, it's back to the courage, you know, you just have to go exactly. ahead. People might think you're wasting your time, but you know, you get vindicated over time. Exactly. And I mean, by already, if I'm not mistaken, by 92, you started conceiving the International Reggae Studies Centre and yes. thinking that beyond the essay, we need to actually institutionalise this. What's yes. behind that process? Well, it started in an interesting way. Bujo Bantan had brought out Boom Bye Bye, you know, that mm -hmm. very controversial right. anti-sexuality song. Mm -hmm. And there was a conference on creating a venture capital fund for reggae. Um, Babsy Grange, who is now Minister of mm -hmm. Culture, Gender, Entertainment and Sport, but is also a record producer, artist, promoter and stuff. She was mm -hmm. the main figure behind it. And she invited me to give a talk at this seminar. And I, I spoke about the cultural implications of marketing reggae internationally. And I made the point that some of the lyrics that can pass in Jamaica certainly cannot pass abroad. And that was, you know, in the 1992, so it mm -hmm. is even more so problematic now when in the age of the internet where the divide between the local and international is yeah. practically zero because you do a show now and in two twos is up on YouTube, so you can't mm -hmm. say that this is just a song in Jamaica, it's a global song. Because right. some of the DJs under pressure used to say, oh, well, they're singing the song in Jamaica and it's part of our culture and, you know, but it goes abroad and people hear right. it. And so I said quite clearly that, you know, you, would you cannot sing a song like that? No. And the reaction of the audience, I mean, I got a standing ovation and um, it's on my way home. I said, because I created the cultural context out of which the song came. So I said, it's not just Bujo being wicked. It's, it's what he has been taught. He has internalized this from the culture. And nevertheless, 
it's not acceptable. And on my way home from the conference, it struck me that the university could provide a space where this kind of intellectual inquiry could be done to kind of not necessarily support the artist, but to show, put the artist's work in a broader context. And that's how the idea for the center came. And one of the first things we did was to launch a series in which artists came in and spoke about their career. It was so fantastic. I think it's really fantastic because very often we look at the artists as, you know, the object makers who cannot reflect critically on their practice. It's something that's somehow just instinctual, um, but there's no critical reflection and there's no artistry, critical discourse in, or in thinking about how do you make art. In Sound Clashes, when you describe, when you're speaking specifically about the concept of Sound Clash and there's a point at which I think there was a border clash between one artist and, and think they'd brought in a number of artists who are not big enough artists yet. They were not quite, they hadn't yet refined their craft and the audience had gotten quite upset. You know, they need the, you know, to get value for their money until finally one of the artists came who had refined his craft and then, you know, he could calm the audience down. But it's mm -hmm. to say that there is an internal criticism people know and people can say this is good art this, within the Absolutely. idiom there is a way in which we are we're not simply singing we're not simply just producing whatever there are internal criticism and most production and traditions within that and very often we don't pay enough attention to yes. that listen we organized the launch of butcher's rasta got soul album at mm -hmm. university and butcher spoke for about 45 minutes about his career so and he made this controversial statement that Bob Marley is not the greatest artist that Jamaica has produced. He got lambasted for it. And the point he was making is that we can't foreclose, we can't say that there's not going to be somebody bigger than Bob Marley coming along. Oh, people say, would you think he's bigger than Bob Marley? Nothing like that. He was making a very profound point about the way in which we tend to glamorize particular individuals and in so doing limit the scope, the potential of what is to come. But it's that right. kind of brilliant insight that you get from the artist when you give them a space to not just perform, but to reflect on their work. Exactly. And I think even the, the other part is sometimes we think that they aren't already doing that work. It's actually us who are in the academy's work is impoverished for not listening as you've made a practice of doing to actually listen and how that might even inform our own work because there's so many important insights and what he's speaking to a tradition. I mean, one of the things that you know you you mentioned in the book is that people speak about Bob Marley's influence. They don't talk enough about the fact that, well, he was more popular outside than he was inside, meaning that there is sometimes a discrepancy between internal standard bearers and cultural standards versus what is perceived um, internationally. So those kinds of conversations aren't things that are taken seriously enough and I yeah. think it's really important that that's something that you've been doing with the institution and you've had a whole range of, of <laughs> artists over the years like yes. Tony Revel, um, Liz Bennett, Jamie Harding who've come to do this Bob Marley lecture series and I mean very often even myself sometimes I'll have my favorite musician I was like I don't want to hear them speak I just want them to, yes. to, to, to sing which is not the tradition that we that we actually yeah. come from. Well let me tell you there's the, the Bob Marley lecture series is different from the talks with the artists. Harding was not and Tony Weber were not part of the Bob Marley lectures. In fact I'm right now editing a selection of the Bob Marley lectures because next year is the 25th anniversary Bob Marley lecture series. So I'm doing, you know, working on that. And I'm telling you, the, the other series, I have, a, we have some of them transcribed already. I want to do a book called Dance Hall Philosophy because I believe that reflection, as you say, goes into the creating of the work. It's not just something that, you know, the, the academic is imposing. I think the artists are consciously reflecting on what they're doing. And I think we need to recognize that there is this work that the artists do that we need to honor. In fact, the title of the chapter, Slackness Hiding, came from one of the songs by one mm -hmm. of the, I think it was Admiral Bailey. He had the song Slackness Hiding from Culture. And I was able to listen to it and then pull out of that maybe things that he might not have intended, but that they're inscribed in the language. Right. For me, what, what I think is really 
interesting in how you're drawing from the culture and drawing theory of aesthetics, as you're saying, dancehall philosophy, dancehall aesthetics, is that very often, particularly those who are in the academy, feel a kind of pressure. For example, if you're going to be talking about aesthetics, it's going to be aesthetics through Kant, for example. You're going to talk about it through European theory as if we don't have our own internal modes of aesthetic theory and aesthetic philosophy. It's quite interesting throughout your work has been that tug between what is perceived as theory proper, what is perceived as aesthetic proper or philosophy proper. What does it mean for you to be deliberate about drawing directly from the culture and and it's not merely just describing, but you're infusing and listening in and, and that is what informs the idiom through which you are writing? Yes, that's a brilliant question because what I've been trying to do is to see the theory embedded in the practice. I'm trying to see what the texts themselves can tell us about cultural production. I completely love that because, I mean, one of the things I have to think about is the fact that, you know, Black sound is very much somatic. And you'll see this across, you know, Africa and its diasporas, that this idea that music is disembodied or that you can listen to a song without moving. So a song, the beauty of a song is known by what what it does to the body. So one of the yeah. sayings that we have in Sibedi is Saho Shakilirule, meaning quite literally of song is dust, meaning that you know a song by the dust that it raises. So a song is known by the movements that it creates in people's bodies. Does if the song doesn't make you tear up dust, it not say nothing. It's not saying anything exactly, then it's not then it's not a song ultimately. Yes. And in fact then you know you'd even then there is that perhaps even the notion of song is inadequate to actually think about our own philosophy of performance, that perhaps it's not just a song, it's, it's an entire performance Absolutely. culture. It's music movement. In, in, in song clash, I describe dance hall as the movement around the center pole. You know, it's, it's a song, it's a lyrics, it's everything. And I use that center pole metaphor coming from Haitian voodoo as a place where the spirits and the bodies communicate. And as you're talking about digging into these uh, spiritualities, which are their own cosmologies, I'm interested in how in theorizing dance hall and Black women's agency or the ways in which they move through it, you've theorized it through um, thinking about goddesses in Yoruba culture, for example, yes. and you think about it through um, fertility rituals. How have you done that and what's the reception been to that? Well, it just came to me. I was in Nigeria a long time ago and happened to be there at the time of the Oshun festival. Mm-hmm. And I got whipped, <laughs> you know, for this <laughs> part of that. So how I end up into this thing, have people beating me. But it was not a serious beating. But that scene, that figure of beauty, the way mm-hmm. the Oshun was beauty celebrated. And the fact that spirituality is embodied in African cosmology. Mm-hmm. The spirit is not something that is outside of the body. The body manifests the spirit. And, and that is how I began to think now of the, the dancing female bodies in Jamaican dance hall culture as manifesting a kind of spiritual essence, aesthetics, the beauty of the body, celebrating creativity and all of that fertility so i completely love it because being continentally african and living in diaspora now in the so-called new world sometimes there's been that reification of the door of no return and this idea that once we've gone through middle passage there's an irreparable void and there's a complete loss of memory and at least what i'm hearing what it could be easy for someone to think well it must have been something that you were necessarily taught explicitly at school and that's how you know that they were the rituals but really what you're seeing there is that very much memory is in the body and for you to then immediately recognize say, i know what they're doing i can see what they're doing because i've seen that at home yes. and that recognition and i find that it's you know we, we're we're very much caught sometimes in diaspora studies where there's been this turn away from africa and we're caught in this herskovitz versus fraser debate about retention versus you know lost all of those things but you're seeing particularly within why I find the Caribbean so um, generative is this call and response that memory is never lost. It's always yeah. within us. And in that recognition, when I see, you don't need to be a professor to see that these are all Africans and they're drawing from a similar source. 
Absolutely. And Kamal Brathwaite, you know, he has a wonderful description of the Middle Passage that it wasn't loss. It was like a channel. You know, he mm -hmm. loves to make up these words. Mm -hmm. It's like a channel and a tunnel. Mm -hmm. It was a path through which culture was transmitted. So Walcott, Derek Walcott has a line about one of his poems about this deep amnesia blow. Mm -hmm. That's his description of the Middle Passage. But even Walcott knew that it wasn't amnesia. And you can recover from amnesia, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. But that idea of loss of memory is something that we, we know is a fiction that Africans in the diaspora carry in their bodies traces of the cultures from which we came. And one of the things that's that's really interesting for me also, you know, I'm, I'm from Zimbabwe and what's really fantastic is, you know, one of the, the sound of youth culture in Zimbabwe is dancehall. In fact, we, our own local idiom is dancehall or zim dancehall. The music of, you know, the ghetto youth in Zimbabwe is zim dancehall. And even there's a longer tradition anyway of this, again, call and response between Africa and Afro diaspora, that it's not just one way of the retentions of that is also simultaneously regenerating each other. For example, I was speaking to, I, you know, now I live in Boston and I was speaking to one of my friend's mothers and I was speaking about the fact that what we were listening to when it was our revolution yes. was um, reggae. Yes. And that's why Bob Marley came and he sang at our independence. And since then, there's continued to be a particular kind of tradition of reggae and dancehall and continue to proliferate within youth culture. And there's that continuing back and forth of regenerating a sense of Africanness. So it's not just one-sided. It goes both ways, back and forth, as opposed to just one singular void that was created by that middle passage. And I think very often... It's not just that we are listening to be beneficial or to be benevolent to the artists. There's so much that expressive cultures should be teaching us as scholars and academics. Yes, in fact, I was thinking of Thomas Mapfumo. He made the point that what we are calling reggae, traditional Zimbabwean rhythms. In Jamaica, you got the R&B and mm -hmm. our mentor turning into ska, which mm -hmm. evolved ultimately into reggae. But... Some of these beats are, as we said, noise, you know, noises in the blood. Line I took from the Jamaican novelist Green, who talks about, you know, you mustn't be a griot, you can't have no fear when knowledge comes to you, like an echo in the bone or a noise in the blood. So this idea of knowledge being passed down in the blood, almost knowledge as genetic, diaspora, really has its roots on the continent. And so you get um, a brilliant scholar like Louis Chudisuke, talking about yes. when echoes return in his brilliant work on sound and Africa and the diaspora. So what we think is originally the diaspora is really an echo that keeps on reverberating. Completely. And I absolutely love that and how there's so much discussion of this loss but recognizing that there's so much that's there because very often people are going in search of archives and this constant, I think, a deep set of anguish around the fact that if I go to the archive, my people are not there, or at least if they yes. are there, they're only in the ledgers, you know, the slave books and that kind of thing. However, there's a different archive, a living and a spiritual archive, right? As you're saying, in the same way that when you went to visit and you can immediately see that embodiment was something that you've grown up with. Absolutely. It's really going through your work again. I think one of the themes in thinking about, you know, this idea of being daughters of Africa and a particular kind of history, that there's no linearity and being able to surrender yourself to it. And one of the things that I've learned in really taking time to listen to music, particularly during this pandemic, um, yeah. you know, I was feeling very much homesick. And one of the ways in which I could home myself was, you know, it was a sonic homing through music and sound yeah. and thinking about what does music teach us? What does music teach us as a technology of time and how our people have used that? And that there's no linearity to some of these things that we want to prescribe a linearity to these things. Even so, as I'm reading you, many of the debates that you were having then are still debates we're having right now. Yes. We always think that, you know, it's, it's, we're looking for something new, but very often it's just about looking for what's already been there. Just recognizing what exists. But that act of recognition requires a, a kind of mindset that says, what I'm seeing on the surface isn't all that there is. So you have to go deeper. I'm interested in just your work in going 
deeper, not just deeper within the academy, but across different fields, right? So you, you've done the work of institutionalizing within the academy, but you also then, you know, write your columns and the, and the Sunday Gleaner, for example. And sometimes you're getting this kind of backlash about the fact that you are doing this border crossing in, in different forms of language yeah. using Jamaican. And it's almost as if there's the shock of recognition that people don't want to see what you're forcing them to, to see. Yes, you know, once a month, I write a column in Jamaican and the abuse, I can't, I can't believe it. You, you know, I just wonder why do people get so angry? And I realize it's a, it has to be a deep self-hate. And I think it's part of the legacy of colonialism. People just can't deal with the fact that we come from Africa. It's this contempt for Africa in Jamaica. And it's ironic because you have Rastafari, you have Jamaica has such an image of a radically African-centered place. And just not true at a certain level because the nature of colonialism is that it has made people internalize a negative self-concept. Nothing black, no good. You know, they just don't want to see language get any visibility. And it's not the language, it's about the speakers of the language. People in Jamaica had to shut up. So when I put their language on the Gleaners um, editorial page, I am saying this thing is important and they don't want to hear this. It's such an interesting contradiction. As you're saying, for those of us who come from outside Jamaica, yes. we, we understand Jamaica as this vanguard of global pan-Africanism as a authority and someone who spent so much time studying Jamaican culture, dancehall culture, what do you think that makes Jamaica so distinctive and so powerful in all the various achievements it's had? I mean, thinking about Rastafari as such an important cultural force, thinking about Marcus Garvey, the UNIA, as you say, the, the really the, the largest popular pan-Africanist movement the world has ever seen looking at the, of the force of people like Bob Marley, Peter Tosh, a whole range of forces now we're looking at dancehall. And this is a small, with respect, a very small island, less than three million people. And yet you are colonizing, as you say, the world from this without even the same kinds of imperial capital that let's say African-Americans might boast of. What is it specifically that makes Jamaican culture such an important cultural force in the world? It's a miracle. That's all I can say because there's no rational explanation for why Jamaican culture is such a global force. Except to say that on this small island, you have a people, as I say, with a sense of history coming from some a bigger, larger than this island and just having an intuitive knowledge about the value of their own lives and what they can make of that life. Because we came with culture in our heads. We weren't allowed to bring any of the trappings, the material trappings of culture when we came here. We were just brought, quote unquote, physically naked. But we had the capacity to recreate culture, which is what we did. Michael Veal, one of the authors in the Global Reggae book that I edited, Bill says, we're little, but we're talawa. We're small, but we're powerful. And there's no denying that at all. I hope you're going to be sending me an invitation to be coming to Jamaica soon. <laughs> for, for everybody, I, I think there's certain places that we need to all go to as Black people in the world, but I think Jamaica definitely has to be one of those. And there's so many things and such a powerful force for us as, you know, the daughters and sons of Africa as we've been scattered across the world. And I'm so happy to have been able to talk to you today. I'm hoping that we'll be able to organize some kind of celebration in Jamaica in 2023 to mark the 30th anniversary of the publication of Noises in the Blood. That book has really had quite an impact that I could not possibly have anticipated when I was writing it. So many people have told me how much it, you know, it impacted their own work. Um, I was going to ask you what's next, but since you've said this, you've answered at least in part. Yeah, well, one of the That's things I want to do is publish a selection of my newspaper columns because I have over 700 of them. 
and people tell me that they use them in their academic work. And also I want to publish a selection of my academic papers in literature that are in neither of the two books. I'm so excited to hear that you're going to be doing that because we're interested in the work of generations and our African cosmology is an intergenerational spirit. It's not about one generation of the other. It's that complete you know, work of those who've gone before us, those who come with us and those who are going to come ahead mm-hmm. of us. Thank you so much for doing that um, and creating this body of work, this vulgar body of work (laughs) (laughs) that we can enjoy and we can draw upon unashamed because many of the arguments that you know you've laid and and many of the battles that you fought have made it easier for someone of my generation who no longer has to make an argument for why i can study guaito for example or why i can study house music because i can point to the likes of professor carolyn cooper and what you've done for dance hall we can do it in other you know marginalized expressive um, youth culture so thank you so much for giving us your time and your time that you've given us all these years i can't say thank you enough thank you dear professor cooper an absolute pleasure Subscribe to the new Daughters of Africa podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. On social media, follow at iContinental, at I-K-O-N-T-I-N-E-T-A-L on Twitter and Instagram, as well as myself, at P-A-N-A-S-H-E underscore C-H-I-G on Twitter and at P-A-N-A-S-H-E-C-H-I-G-U-M-A-D-Z-I on Instagram. The New Daughters of Africa podcast is a production of Intercontinental, a non-profit association dedicated to the promotion of African and Afro-diasporic literature based in Berlin, Germany. It's made possible with funding by the Berlin City Center Department for Culture and Europe. Original theme music by Toke, podcast artwork by Adrian Wilkins. (laughs) 